time has come today. Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel with a program about time. Not such a long time ago, time was an arbitrary measure decided by each community without consideration of other localities. In this edition of Radio Curious, we visit with Clark Blaze, author of Time Lord, Sir Sanford Fleming and the Creation of Standard Time. In the mid-19th century, with the advent of continent-spanning railroads and transatlantic steamers, the myriad of local times became a mind-boggling obstacle. The rational ordering of time to some became an urgent priority for transportation and commerce. Standard time was established in 1884, leading to an international uniformity for telling time. Arguably, uniformity of time was the crowning achievement of Victorian progressiveness, one of the few innovations of that time to have survived unchanged into the 21st century. Under the leadership of Sir Sanford Fleming, amid political rancor of delegates from industrializing nations, an agreement was reached to establish the Greenwich Prime Meridian passing through Greenwich, England, and the international date line that wanders its way through the Pacific Ocean. This 1884 agreement resulted in a uniform system of worldwide time zones that exists today. I had a good time visiting with Clark Blaze in the spring of 2001 as we discussed how our current notion of time was established. We began when I asked him to explain what standard time is. Standard time was a way of uh, agreeing uh, among uh, the countries and among uh, politically, culturally, technologically, whatever you want to call it, of agreeing on a single set, a single standard by which uh, we would measure time. In other words, it would be measured according to uh, Western notation. Well, what does that mean, Western notation? That the civil day would start at, at midnight, which is counterintuitive to most people in the world. <laughs> Uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, observant uh, Jews and, and Arabs would start the day at sundown, officially marking the beginning of the day at sundown. And, and that's because and, sundown is a time certain when most people are awake? Yeah, it, and also it's, it just makes sort of intuitive sense that God is uh, hiding his face. You know, it makes a, a kind of an intuitive sense in a traditional cultures that all you needed to know, in fact, was daylight and, and nighttime in an agricultural community, for example. But the development of commerce imposed a requirement for coordination. A huge amount of coordination. Uh, consider uh, schedules, tariffs, uh, contracts, and all the rest of it, sure. So how did this come to be? Well, the uh, Western... The Western Civil Day, beginning at midnight, 
avoids the problems of dawn and dusk, you know, avoids the problem of sunrise and sunset. Uh, it'll always be dark when that happens, so you are not even tempted to consider the day starting uh, uh, with the sun or with sort of the natural uh, appearance of the sun or the natural setting of the sun. So this is one way of, of breaking the hold uh, that nature had imposed on mankind for thousands of years and saying that man himself can uh, can sort of seize the uh, the logic, if you wish, of the day and say that his day will begin at, at, at midnight, uh, therefore avoiding all of the problems of uh, summer and winter and when the days are longer or the days are shorter. You had all the sorts of problems like that. But still, whether the sun sets at 5 o'clock or 9 o'clock, the next day it'll be very close in time, so a day is quite close to uh, one revolution on its axis. Right. Well, that's the only scientifically imposed uh, uh, reality, is the, the Earth's rotation on its axis and the uh, Earth's rotation around the sun. That there's going to be uh, a, fixed, a fixed amount of time before the dawn comes around again or before the um, January 1st, let's say, comes around again. It's a fixed number of, of days, however you want to measure the days. The days don't have to be 24 hours long. Uh, the days don't have to, the, the week doesn't have to be seven days long. Uh, the hour doesn't have to be composed of 60 minutes and the minute of 60 seconds. These are all, uh, as I say, uh, uh, impositions that were built into the standard time uh, convention or the standard time uh, agreements. I'd like you to explain how those impositions evolved, but before we get to that, can you explain the different kinds of time zones that there were perhaps in the United States before we had the 24 time zones around the world? Well, before, before that, we didn't really have time zones as such. Uh, we had time standards, as they were called, that were... Um, Sounds like a newspaper. <laughs> the time standards, right. Well, we had time standards that were largely imposed by the railroads themselves, uh, so that uh, the railroads' running schedules became, in a sense, the time zone. So that uh, if you were getting on the uh, Pennsylvania Railroad in Philadelphia and running to Chicago, you stayed on Philadelphia time all the way through to Chicago. And then when you got off in Chicago, you were ready for a big surprise because it would be uh, two hours earlier than your Philadelphia time. Essentially what we're saying is that there was no time zone because every community on the earth, on the face of the earth, adopted solar time as its standard. So that means the sun at noon as sort of sundial time created your time for your particular little community. But if you went 12 miles east or 12 miles west, you would be involved in a different minute. Do you see what I mean? So that uh, uh, by following the sun, we were committing ourselves to a, uh, an almost infinite number of times, all of which were relevant, all of which made perfectly good sense to people living within their own little bubble of 12 miles. The 12 miles is significant to the circumference of the Earth? Exactly. How does that relate when you get farther north or south from the equator? It becomes... Uh, it becomes uh, less than 12. Yes. So this began to cause a problem as commerce developed in the United States? And well, the, as the speed of life picked up. The speed of life was really determined by the locomotive and by the telegraph, the two big 
inventions of the 1820s and 1830s. So, so what as happened? Soon as, yeah, so as soon as you started being able to go 500 miles in a day, you were bursting through uh, uh, 25 different time zones. And people didn't know what time it would be uh, when they got off their train. And when they began to care, the paradigm was beginning to shift? Exactly. I mean, not only beginning to care, but you had the proliferation of railroad lines, all of them adhering to the time of their headquarters. Uh, If you were uh, intersecting, if you were coming from Philadelphia and intersecting a train that was coming out of New Orleans, the two trains would not be able to communicate there at the same time. When you say the headquarters, you mean the headquarters... The actual headquarters of the railroad company. So what happened? People would arrive early or late and didn't know it? Well, people had to carry a a compendium with them, a a correspondence book uh, that was a very thick, almost a traveler's Bible, uh, that rendered uh, equivalent times um, for every city and for every railroad and for every junction in the country. So that if you were uh, getting off that Philadelphia train, say, in Pittsburgh, uh, and you were meeting another train that was coming in from St. Louis, you would have to know what the, uh, in real time, what the uh, St. Louis time was as opposed to the Philadelphia time. It became extraordinarily complicated. And if you received, for example, a telegram uh, in, in California uh, sent from uh, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, and it was uh, given, and the Pittsburgh local time was given, you still had no way, no way of knowing what time it, what time that meant you know what what it what it meant for you uh the the man for example who was uh running the weather service the first man who created the uh, uh US weather service was receiving instantaneous and was receiving a continual flow of data from about 2000 different reporting stations all around the country but all of those reporting uh stations were reporting the their data in their time, so it was impossible to know, uh, for example, if a uh, if a front that was moving was really moving in uh, um, at the same time between two places. So the legacy of uh, President Chester A. Arthur is left by the establishment of what we now know as Standard Time. Right. Uh, it was Tell us just, how that occurred. Yeah, it was in 1883 and 1884. Uh, the, uh, uh, in 1883, the railroads in North America got together and created something like time zones, something like the five hours that we now have in, uh, in North American uh, railroads. You had the, the Pacific, the Mountain, the Central, the Eastern, and the Atlantic time zones. Uh, they were not clearly geometrically uh, laid out the way they are today, following sort of uh, uh, you know the larger longitudinal pattern. They were rather uh, rough-edged zones that really followed the railroad lines rather than the longitudinal marking. The legacy of the railroad control? This was exactly it. The railroads controlled time. The railroads uh, were deathly afraid, however, that the government might come in and impose something on them. So they came up with this solution, which was not particularly satisfactory, but it it worked in a way. And that was in 1883. But in 1884 came the larger conference called by Chester A. Arthur 
uh, for Washington, D.C., the International, uh, the Prime Meridian Conference of 1884, which was really pushed by Sir Sanford Fleming, the man who's the focus of my book, uh, the man I call the Time Lord. He is the man who uh, pushed for a world uh, solution to standard to the standard time problem. Uh, the railroads in North America didn't have to deal, after all, with with a prime meridian or with a or with an international dateline. But someone who would take on the question of standard time for the world had to take on those other questions as well. Why was the prime meridian uh, selected to run through uh, Greenwich, England? This was a political thing. Ninety uh, percent in the time of the 1880s, ninety percent of the world's shipping was really controlled by two powers, Britain and the United States. Uh, Britain through all of it, you know, through its entire uh, uh, empire fleet. So that 90% of the world was already using charts based on a prime meridian, that is a zero meridian out of Greenwich, England. Uh, so that it was practical, uh, but, it was not necess- but it was not scientific in any way. And you still had uh, a dozen other countries in the world who were uh, using their own prime meridians, so that if you were meeting a, a Brazilian boat or a French boat or a Spanish or Italian boat out on the sea, you would not be able to communicate with him, just like the railroads in, in North America, you would not be able to communicate at sea with someone who was not using a Greenwich chart, because their zero would be running through Paris or, or Cadiz or Rome or whatever it may be. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Clark Blaze, author of Time Lord, Sir Sanford Fleming, and the Creation of Standard Time. This program was recorded in the spring of 2001 and first broadcast in the last week of 2011. Time is the consideration of many of us. So let's take a brief reprise and listen to a portion of Time as sung by the Chambers Brothers in the 1970s. You've just heard a portion of Time, as sung by the Chambers Brothers. This is Radio Curious. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel, in conversation with Clark Blaze, author of Time Lord. Clark, when Standard Time was imposed, there was a 24-hour clock, and then it evolved to the 12-hour clock that we know now. Can you explain the the background on that? Twelve-hour clock was uh, the standard, and uh, Sanford Fleming was very much involved in the 24-hour clock. So he wanted the 24-hour clock. In fact, it was the uh, existence of the 12-hour clock that got him started 12 years earlier in the whole question of standard time, because he had missed his train, because there had been a misprint in in that big, thick uh, traveler's guide to the railroads that had put a 5.30 p.m. departure at 5.30 a.m. So since he missed his train, uh, he started asking himself, why do we have these 12-hour phases? Are we so stupid that we can't uh, uh, keep a 24 hours in mind? And so he's the one who started his uh, uh, 
time revolution or his uh, at least his uh, uh, standardization program uh, based on the 24-hour clock. And so the 24-hour clock was, in fact, adopted at the uh, Prime Meridian Conference as well. And that's why you have the 24-hour clock more or less used around the world, except in the United States. I mean, if you talk about seven, you know, we'll leave it 1750 or something, you you say that quite easily in, in Europe, but you don't say it here. Why is that? I think America is a very uh, conservative country, uh, and is the legacy certainly of its uh, isolation from the rest of the world. That it didn't, it never, it felt it never had to do it. It's the same kind of isolation that uh, refuses to adopt the, the metric system, whereas everyone else in the world has it. We are still using a British imperial measure, the only country to do so. Sometimes the great you know, disaster, such as the, the Mars lander, if you remember once, when we re- got confused with pounds of fuel and, and uh, kilos of fuel. And how much was on board? And would they make it? <laughs> uh, it, was, it, was a terrible, it was a terrible disaster. I mean, we would have had a perfect Mars landing, except for uh, the, some, some fool not uh, making the proper conversions. You have an interesting analogy with movies in your book, movies as to time and prime meridians in a movie. Yeah, um, when I was a, a kid uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, my parents were working uh, all the time. They had a little store, and so I was I was free to go to the movies after school, and I would do it just about every night. And uh, you know, in those days, the movies ran continually. You just sort of walk into the movie. And uh, the idea of actually waiting for the movie to start was a kind of a, a bizarre idea to me. You, you'd walk in in the middle, and uh, you would catch up with the movie. And you would stay until you had uh, come into the part where you had entered. And that is the analogy I use to, to standard time. That is, uh, the Earth is continually rotating, and it doesn't matter when or where you would, say, establish a zero meridian. It could be Yokohama, it could be Ukiah, it could be uh, New York, it could be anywhere. Uh, because in 24 hours, as we call them hours, in those 24 hours, it'll come back again to the same place. You know, the, the Earth's rotation means that every longitude uh, passes under the sun once, you know, one, once a day. Uh, and when the second rotation comes, that's the end of the day. Uh, and that's the way movies were. Um, you know, it, and it's, 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 it's a, it was a simple analogy to, to draw, but it was one that uh, I thought was quite uh, maybe useful for people of my age, at least, who remembered that, uh, that, that experience. And it was the kind of thing that nowadays we are uh, we go to movies very very much on the Greenwich model. You know, we all wait until uh, until the opening, and and the idea of actually even being allowed to sit through uh, uh, the movies to sort of sit there in your seat and stay all day would be uh, it would not be permitted. You have to pay again. You have to pay again. So that, you know, that we're we having a, it's, it's a different world. Let's look at time in relationship to the calendar change, changing from 2002 to 2003, for example. Mm-hmm. That's just an artificial placement. Yes, yes. Uh, these, are, these are all, our, you know, that there are 
for example, even a seven-day week, seven days as a week is artificial. It comes from the Bible. I mean, it, it is a hangover from the imposition of, of, of the biblical creation story, and, it's a, and it was also part of the uh, Roman and Greek notions that uh, there were seven visible heavenly bodies, each of them in, in, inhabited, let's say, by a god. You had the sun, the moon, and then the five visible planets. So seven became embedded as uh, the notion of, uh, of, of a week. But the idea of 52 weeks, the idea of seven days in a week, the idea of 24 hours in a day, all of these things are, are arbitrary. Uh, and various other cultures have, have other, other numbers to deal with. Uh, when the revolution came in France, they wanted to decimalize uh, time and, in fact, to get it away from uh, the idea of religion. So they made the 20-hour, the 20-hour day, the 50-week uh, year. Uh, you know, they they had a, a, the hundred the hundred-minute hour. And currently, where approximately 25 percent of the people on Earth live in China, they use a lunar calendar. Well, of course, the lunar calendar is used also by Muslims. That's that's how, and by Jews. These are how, uh, and 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 we have only one hangover in that, uh, in our, and that's the Easter. That's why Easter is why we can't fix it as a, as a single date each year. Well, it's predicted off of the lunar cycles being the Sunday after the first full moon after the uh, uh, spring equinox. So there you are. <laughs> it's, it's, it's still really our only, uh, our really, really our only uh, um, uh, in, inheritance, let's say, from an earlier worldview. Clark, you mentioned briefly the importance of solar eclipses. Can you fill us in on that? Yeah, the solar eclipse uh, for the 19th century uh, scientist was a, a great magical moment. Uh, first of all, it was a gathering point where all the astronomers would meet, knowing where they had to be at any given time. The great solar eclipse of uh, 1869 was in uh, South India. Uh, that was the, the best point and it allowed people who were experimenting with uh, cameras to take uh, pictures of the solar flares during the time of uh, optimum uh, eclipse, uh, and then analyze the, uh, the starlight, the sunlight, uh, spectrographically for its chemical makeup. Now, this was considered in the 19th century almost the epitome of, of scientific uh, uh, advancement of scientific uh, modernity, if you wish, to be able to say that something that is millions of miles away is composed uh, because of the um, uh, analysis that you can make of the light is composed of certain chemicals. Uh, this was a, a remarkable demonstration uh, of science, I think, that was open to even unscientific minds were beginning to see how important it was. And also, of course, the fact that it was a place in which scientists could meet and discuss their ideas. And in fact, all of the people who were major movers of the Standard Time Movement in 1884 were, in fact, together in Madras, India in 1869. As well as being able to predict uh, the moment of the solar eclipse. Yes. Yeah, that had been, of course, predictable many, many years. I mean, even uh, in, in Newtonian physics, they could uh, make uh, pr uh, uh, predictions about when, when there would be eclipses. This is, not a, uh, this is not that difficult 
for people who know how to do it. But uh, uh, taking it to the next step was something new. Clark, you describe a standard time as a watershed moment in history. What do you mean? The uh, moment in which mankind uh, took control of time for its own purposes, for technology, for business, for the arts, for the sciences, uh, uh, is a watershed moment because it was taking it away from the priests, uh, the druids, the, uh, the Bible, uh, and other kinds of uh, natural uh, controls, so that what had always been considered to be larger than man, that is, the, the fates almost, um, suddenly became under man, fell under man's control. And we simply said, it doesn't matter um, what, uh, the, what the time, it doesn't matter what the seasons are, it doesn't matter what's light and dark, it doesn't, many things don't matter. What really matters is our own convenience. And once we established a kind of uh, harmony, a temporal harmony, we were able then to coordinate so many, many more things. That is, uh, it would be impossible to have computers without standard time, be impossible to have um, any of our uh, contracts and any of kinds, of course, of our businesses, any kinds of, uh, well, I mean, you, you just down the line, it all depends upon an agreed, it all depends on an agreed upon standard. Which is so agreed upon that everyone knows when it is and what it means to be on time. Exactly, exactly. And, and no one knew what it meant to be on time even 125 years ago. Uh, to be on time meant you had to ask a second question. What time are we talking? Are you talking about solar time or are you talking about the Pennsylvania Railroad time? What, what time are you talking about? And cities like Buffalo or cities like St. Louis had uh, six different official times. Buffalo had three, three times. St. Louis had six official times. Well, Clark Blaze, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. It's a book called The Time of Our Singing by Richard Powers. Wonderful. It's a huge book about American race, but also about uh, science, physics, and, and uh, it's a novel, uh, and music. Uh, it's uh, only Richard Powers, I think, who's the author of some of the exquisite works, could have uh, come up with something as, as daunting as this and yet as readable and as uh, human as this. Well, Clark Blaze, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you, Barry. This interview with Clark Blaze, author of Time Lord, Sir Sanford Fleming, and the Creation of Standard Time, was recorded in the spring of 2001 and first broadcast in the last week of 2011. The book that Clark Blaze recommends is Time of Our Singing by Richard Powers. All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere, to listen, download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, 
www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. Our email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is post office box 7, Ukiah, U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastad is the associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening. Thank you.